Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insights for your writing. I'm Andy Chamberlain, I'm a writer and creative writing coach, and in each episode, we'll be exploring an aspect of the craft together. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Tool Belt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distills them into one volume. I hope this podcast is helpful to you on your writing journey. If you do find it useful, please do subscribe and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. So thank you for joining me and here's this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. My guest for this episode is someone who has spent nearly 50 years in publishing. Tony Collins has worked for a number of publishing houses, owned three magazines, published an astonishing 1,400 books, and is now a literary agent. In this conversation, we talk about the lessons that he's learned in his career, about the most common errors that writers make with their work, how the author must remember that they are guests at the reader's table, and that, of course, there are many other things that a reader could be doing other than reading our book. We talk about the essential power of narrative, why we can't write in the way that Dickens did, and the place for anecdote in non-fiction, finding the right publisher, engaging well with them, and why it's essential for your book to get the title and the hook right. Tony speaks with the benefit of decades of experience, and there are some wonderful fundamental insights for us here. I really enjoyed talking to Tony. I hope you find it useful listening to the conversation. Here it is. So, Tony, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. It's great to have you as my guest today. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I want to start um, by asking you if you could share a little bit about your background with us, some of the things you've done in terms of your publishing career, places you've worked, jobs you've done, that kind of thing. Okay. Over the course of my working life, I've published about 1,400 books. I'm a specialist in Christian books, so that's the area in which I've worked. I've worked with Hodders and SPCK and Lion Hudson and a few other companies. And my role within those, those companies has really been the same all the way along. Um, that is to say that I've been a commissioning editor. But because of the, the nature of the editorial work, the editor is a, a generalist, is the, is the person who, who has a, a smattering of all of the skills. And so I, along the way, not least because I ran my own company for nine years, um, I've been variably an accountant, um, a paper buyer, a design buyer, which is a disaster because I've used to that. that. Um, and I've chosen, uh, I've worked with editors. So I've, I've, you know, you, you become at least partially competent in fields such as uh, legal matters and distribution and sales and marketing and all kinds of things. Just to clear one thing up, just in case some people aren't, aren't sure. Um, so there are editors, but you called yourself a commissioning editor. So yes. for those who perhaps don't know, what is what does a commissioning editor specifically do that makes what's special about them? Okay, basically a commissioning editor is a hunter-gatherer. Uh, the co commissioning editor is the person who finds and assesses submissions to them to the, the publishing company. Um, most publishing companies have far more books being submitted to them than they can possibly handle. So the commissioning editor is the one who, who wields the, the filter 
to who who manages the sieve, if you like, and um, their selection of books is ultimately what makes a company succeed or fail. Okay. Now, I know that one of the things that you are quite interested in is this relationship between the reader and the author. And sometimes it is not a smooth relationship. Sometimes uh, there's a little bit of perhaps misunderstanding between the between the reader and the author. And I wondered if you, we could just explore that for a, for a couple of minutes. So what, as let's say as authors, what do we get wrong when we're trying to create something for our reader? Okay. Well, the, the, most, the most common error of all is for an author to overlook the fact that a book is a one-person-to-one-person experience. It's a, it's a one-on-one encounter between the author's mind and the reader's mind. If you like, it's a dialogue of which the writer has only half. And the most common mistake, therefore, that is, is made in my experience as an editor is that the author gets locked into broadcast mode. Um, you end up by haranguing your author. The critical thing you have to remember all the time, no matter what genre of writing you engage upon, is that you are a guest at your reader's table. You have to make sure that you are sufficiently congenial as a guest that you get invited back. Um, Because you have to remember all the time that there are brilliant podcasts to listen to. There are the sports headlines. There's a small child tugging at your sleeve. There is the bill which you are trying to ignore. I mean, there's a, a million reasons why you should not be reading a book, and you have to you you have to be sufficiently winsome as a writer that you actually get past all of those. And so your task is first of all to enthrall. You've got to enthrall by narrative, by insight, by subtlety and logic, by information and by humour, by passion. You basically have to make the reader miss their bus. Now, that's an interesting word, enthrall. So I guess there's this sense of we've got to capture. As authors, we have to capture the reader, draw them in so that, as you say, all this myriad of distractions going on in the world doesn't claim them back. The, the authors that you've come across who are really good at this, what makes them masters or mistresses of, of being able to enthrall their reader? I think that you have to set a narrative going. A narrative is not just essentially a description of events. A narrative can also be a train of thought. It can be an argument. It can be a sequence of of humour. But the critical thing is that there is something which is is going to say, shut up a second, I've got to listen to this. I've got to hear what's going to come next. You know, you have to be able to create the sense of anticipation. And whether you're writing a novel or whether you're writing an, uh, an encyclopedia entry, and you are compelling by the force of your argument and the, the, the wealth of information and the depth of insight, the, the same thing happens, has to, has to happen, that there is a, a sequence of argument, there is a narrative running, which is going to compel attention. And is it, is it then the case that almost like you've, you've put one piece in place and then the person is almost craving the next piece, they're, they're kind of they're ready for that next bit. You're creating the appetite for them for one more piece of information in that in that argument or that sequence that you're presenting. Yes. I mean, your, your first challenge as a writer is to get the reader to turn the page. Turn the page. You know, mm. if, it, if mm. you don't do that, you've failed. You know, they're going to move on to something else. I mean, you know, there is a performance element to, to being a, a writer. It's quite interesting. You enca- There is an encounter, a mind-to-mind encounter when you're reading a book or writing a book. But it isn't necessarily your whole person. 
One of my favourite novelists is the author Patrick O'Brien, who wrote Master and Commander, the, which, which was made into a film. And he wrote novels about Nelson's Navy, but, he, but they're, they're, they're wonderful and in, inspiring books. And there is a fundamental decency and a generosity of spirit, which is made very attractive in the books. Patrick O'Brien himself was actually quite a, a difficult individual. He, was, he was, did, not, did not treat his family particularly well. And he was a much more, a much less generous spirited individual than the novels would suggest. Mm. So essentially, you have to put on your own coat of many colours. Whether or not it is true to your nature, you actually have to adopt a tone of voice, a, a, an authorial voice, which is going to be congenial to readers. So I suppose that comes back to that point you made about being the, the congenial guest at their table. Yeah, and that right. you know, they can they can kind of throw you out at any moment, can't they? I suppose yeah. if, if they don't like what they're saying. Um, and this remind this reminds me of having done. I, I've I've done little bits of editing myself, and and tiny compared to what you've done. But I've seen with a lot of authors that they, they like to take a few pages to set out their stall, as it were. They, they, they take a few pages to create a setting. And unfortunately, although they, they can be quite pleased with, with this wonderful setting that they've created, it's not necessarily the best thing for the reader. It's not necessarily pulling the reader in. It's not enthralling them. I wondered if you'd, uh, if you'd come across that issue. Do you think that is an issue particularly for, for newer writers? Okay, are you thinking particularly of fiction at this point? Yeah, I'm thinking more of fiction with that, I suppose, where somebody takes yeah. a takes an, a number of pages to kind of paint a picture as they would see it, but they haven't actually really started the story yet. Okay, I think that we have a, a considerable hangover in this country from the, the era of Charles Dickens. I mean, Dickens's novels were very, very long, and that was partly because they were published in instalments. And there was a that he, he, he knew that his, his readers really enjoyed leisurely narrative. Um, I would say that um, today's world is far more fast moving. There are much more competing, many more competing things which, for, which insist on your attention, as we've mentioned. And I would say that you should try as far as possible to create atmosphere and visual impressions not so much through long pages of description, but through your choice of words and through the pauses and dialogue. Essentially, there's, there's a, a, an adage in writing, which is show, not don't tell. Rather than saying he was angry, you should, you should imply his anger by the way that the, mm. the, the words, mm. words are constructed on the page. Mm. And that's, that's a better way to do things, obviously, isn't it? Yeah. Show, not tell. That's a very mm. important principle. I think you probably tend to focus more on non-fiction than fiction in terms of the, the kind of books that you've published. And, and yes, I mean, I've probably published about a hundred novels, but I wouldn't like to okay. call myself a, a really experienced fiction publisher. For those people who are writing non-fiction, and that might be autobiography, it might be history or whatever it is, is there a place for story in those books? Like if you're oh, writing something non-fiction, if story is so great, how do you get story into a book that isn't actually a story in the fictional sense? I think that it is critically important to include the, include appropriate anecdote. And I mean, I've I've published a great deal of theology in the course of my working life, and even the most austere and profound theology, you should be able to use metaphor. You should be able to mm. use vivid language. 
you should be able to say the most complex things in the simplest of terms. Mm. And I, I have, for over many years, recommended to authors writing even quite serious and, comple- and, and complex and weighty books that they really should, in every every six or seven hundred words, they ought to include an anecdote, even if it's just a couple of sentences. They should include a story, um, because there's nothing. There's no nobody's impressed by boring prose, even if. <laughs> Even if you're writing for your peers and your peers are people who are professionals in boring prose, there's no merit in it. You, you know, avoid it if you can. I can imagine some people might push back slightly against that and say, well, but I'm writing, I'm writing some very particular complex piece of science or it's just abstract history or it's just a bit of engineering or um, things yeah. like that. But Many ways of compelling the attention, and the more specialist the material, the more arcane it can become. Yeah. So if you're de- if you're dealing with um, a page of equations, then I mean, obviously, the comments about anecdotes are irrelevant. But the but the sophistication and the symmetry of of your of your logic path should be plain for all to see. Okay. It almost sounds as if you would want your authors to understand their subject well enough that they can explain it simply. Perhaps yes, absolutely right. I mean, if you can't explain something simply, then you have not, have not understood it properly. Hmm. I tell you where yeah. this comes into uh, into sharp focus, and that is on cover wordings. If you come across a book with a with a cover wording which is four hundred words long, and is in you know, a tightly crammed into the back onto the back cover, then that is a very very certain sign that the editor hasn't grasped the book properly. I have for years worked with publishers for whom the standard instruction to editors was that cover wording should consist of no more than 150 words. Mm. And when you're, when you're boiling down 75,000 words of close argument to 150, by gum, you have to have understood the book properly. Mm. Mm. Yes, to, to, to summarize something is really to force you to understand, if you're going to do it properly, to force you yeah, to understand absolutely it. Absolutely right. And I mean, you know, there in some some publishers have editors who specialise in writing nothing but cover wordings. That's all they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I would reckon that a good cover wording can easily take two, two or three hours. Yeah, I can. No, I can believe it. That actually, it's. Um, I I can't remember who it was. You said I'm. Just, you might have heard this this anecdote. Talked about anecdotes. Um, the guy who wrote a letter or an email to his friend and it was excessively long. And he said, I'm terribly sorry. This is a very long email or a letter, but I didn't have time to shorten it. Or something yeah. like that, wasn't it? That's right. Um, um, I have in the course of my um, life, I've just been, been not only a publisher and an editor, but I've also been a, a reader in the church of England, which is a layman who, or, lay, or a laywoman who's licensed to preach and teach. So I have to uh, the forbearance of my audiences, I have preached many, many sermons. And if you want to preach for 20 minutes, it's relatively easy. If you want to preach for 10 minutes, it takes you a careful preparation. I imagine that principle carries across all kinds of things, all kinds of of disciplines. Actually, if you want to say something meaningful in 10 minutes, it takes more effort to think it through than if you had 20 minutes or half an hour, perhaps. Yeah. In 10 minutes, there's time to make one good point, tell one good joke, tell one good joke, and that's about it. Now, 
Um, you've worked for a variety of publishers, and I wondered if you could give us one or two tips or your advice from your perspective on the best way to work with the publisher. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more now, I perhaps for people who have, they've got a deal, they're working with a publisher already, and they need to be the, the best author they can be with that publisher. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, obviously, the first task is to make sure that you're communicating with the right person. If you can meet them in person, fine, speak to them, get to know them. Befriend them, because the more that you are present to that, to your editor, the more chance you have that that, that editor is going to look after your interests. Hmm. Mm. Um, because in any publishing house, you have to have a champion. If a book is essentially orphaned, if the editor has commissioned the book and then moved on, you absolutely have to get another champion or your book is almost certainly going to fail because it will not come to the front of the queue in conversations. It will not be mm. given the proper consideration when the cover is designed. The marketing plan will be lackluster. You absolutely have to have somebody who's, who's pushing as hard as possible for, to, to look after your interests. And so fostering a, a really good working relationship with your editor is of critical importance. Mm. That so would be the first thing. So your commissioning editor would be your book's champion in the publishing house, basically, normally? Usually that's the case, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, most of the people in a publishing house don't make contact with either the public or with the author. Um, you know, they're, they're behind the scenes people. They're mm. doing design, they're buying paper, they're buying print. They're looking after the numbers. They're talking to salespeople. And so you, you, your commissioning editor is the person who's, you know, find out when their birthday is. Make, make, make a festival. Make, make sure that you make sure you get to know them. So show them the love a little bit. Your commissioning <laughs> yes, absolutely right. <laughs> show them the love, yeah. Uh, that's if, if, you've, if you've got a deal, which is great. But if you are, I mean, most people, most people approach a publisher via an agent um, these days, I would say. But if you are going to approach a publisher with a manuscript, what's your advice then? So you're you thinking in terms of finding your publisher to start with, is that right? Let's, yeah, let's take it in two steps. Finding the right publisher, and then when you, when you have, engaging with them in the best way possible to give your, your manuscript the best chance possible. Okay. Well, I mean, just in terms of finding the right publisher, you've got to do your homework. You know, go to, to, to websites and look them up. Um, go to bookshops and work out which are the, the specialists for the field in which you're writing. I would imagine that most of your audience will be familiar with this, but just in case you're not, um, do get a copy of the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which lists all of the contact details and all of the telephone numbers for the publishing houses of the UK. It isn't completely comprehensive, but it's the next best thing. And then you've got to be persistent. You need to ring the head office. You need to be asked to be put through to an editor, to be given a name and an email address. You know, you, you do have to press on this one. I mean, so that's, that's task one. That's just getting your, knee, your, your foot through the door. Task two is to answer the question, does your book have a hook? Does your book have a hook? Mm. Because your task then is to catch your editor's attention. And it is up to you to create momentum and to spark curiosity. Um, because I have encountered many authors who have basically told me, I have written the book I wanted to write. And if no one wants to read it, that's their loss. And frankly, if you're expecting the reader or the editor provide, to provide the enthusiasm, then you are expecting to fail. So point one, what is, your, what is the hook? And 
The second thing is to understand what shelf would you put this book on? Hmm. Imagine that you're walking around Waterstones, for example. Waterstones has got some great subject areas. And if you go into Waterstones website, you will find a list of the, the subject areas that they use. And you can you can work out for yourself which of the ca- which category you're, you're you're submitting in. Say that when you're making a submission to an editor. This is this category is mechanical engineering for say, for, for mm. example, mm. or um, historical biography. Okay. I just think about this hook concept now. Can yeah. could you think of an example of a book that's got a good hook so that we know what you mean by a hook? Okay. Yes, I, indeed. I actually, in, when I was preparing for this conversation, Andrew, I prepared a, a short list of possible hooks. Excellent, excellent. Okay, here, here are a few of them. Sure. The Prince of Wales has provided a forward. In two years, we will celebrate the centenary of, fill in the yeah. gap, I had killed six men. I was a hard man in prison for life. <laughs> Last night, my wife made me sleep on the sofa. My gambling habit lost me my home, my job, my wife, my family, and my dog. I have seen two women raised from the dead. I was Johnny Depp's bodyguard. I mean, all of those are, are hooks. Which <laughs> to, I mean, you could. There's no way that with any. If, if I presented you with a proposal and included any of those in the in the the top line, there is absolutely no way I think that an editor would not read the next line. So actually, the hook there is, in those instances, are for the editor's benefit. If you like, they're there to try it. So perhaps that would be in in a cover letter or in in a pitch to an editor. Yes. You've actually, you're hook, you want to hook the editor with something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely right. First, catch your editor. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and another component of this is the title. Yes. Uh, here are some examples of really good titles because you've got to tantalise as you have to entice as well as inform. I mean, every one of these titles worked and the book in, in question succeeded. Here's, here they are. God, Stephen Hawking and the Multiverse, What Hawking Said and Why It Matters. Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And then this is one of my favourites. Miss, what does incomprehensible mean? <laughs> and that was a, a semi-memoir by a lady called Fran Hill. Uh, and her book has no subtitle, but there was a glowing quote from uh, an author called Adrian Plaz, who described it as the Victoria Wood of the classroom. And I mean, that just said everything that you need. So there's a hook. There's a great title. So these things matter in terms of trying to snare an editor. Yes, absolutely. And um, perhaps I don't know. Perhaps they also that a similar thing works if you are if you're pitching to an agent. So a lot of people have to go through an agent to get published. Now, if you're pitching to an agent, I presume these principles still hold true. That you've got, you need a hook, you need a good title, you need a, a clear understanding of what your book is about and where it's going to sit on the, on what shelf. Yes, the context is this: that there are things called slush piles, which is basically the submissions of of books from from agents and from authors. And whether you are an agent or whether you are a publisher, you are almost certainly to have your slush pile of books, which you're going to get around to looking at at some point. Mm. The chaos of the publishing office is such, and the, the pace of life is so great, 
that often the task is designated to the most junior editor in the company to look through the slush pile and see if they can pick out any gems. And so you can you can imagine that you know, the, the, every few weeks the the junior editor in question will will sort of set uh, wrap a, a wet towel around their head and set to work to to work through the 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 20 or 50 or 100 books that have been submitted and which have got through the, the original filters. And you just absolutely have to make sure that your book glitters. You know, the light is not going to last, you know, the searchlight is not going to, to linger very long. You absolutely have to make sure that your, your book stands out from the crowd. So how would we do that? How, what's the, what are the things that I need to do as an author to make sure my book survives the slush pile? Okay. Get your title right, get your hook right, and then you've you've started. Okay. And just 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 getting those two things, getting those two things absolutely straight is is of critical importance. Okay, so let's let's move on and talk about from an agent's point of view then. Uh, so that's the work you do now. You're you're an agent. When you get a manuscript in, what are you looking for, and and what's what's going to what's going to kind of stop you from say popping it in the metaphorical, the digital bin or the real bin after, say, 60 seconds or whatever? Okay. I mean, basically, you, you're going to run a series of filters over, over anything that you're con- concerned. Does the author know their subject matter? Can they write? Are they teachable? Can their writing be brought up to standard if it isn't? Many authors find it really difficult to, to generate a hook or to generate a title. Is there something that I can suggest that the author might consider? Is the author somebody whom you actually enjoy to read? And this mm. is where I, I go back to uh, our earlier in the conversation. Um, you know, are they, is, the author, is the authorial voice a congenial one? Mm. Because basically, if you don't really like the author, it's very hard to work with them. You know, I, I have met, met a few... Not many, I have to say, but I, I have come across a few authors in my time who have been essentially people for whom the task of the editor is to, stray, is to smooth and to place the stray hairs on their ego. And this is not something which I enjoy doing. I'm sure, um, yes. But I'm asking myself all the time, is this, a, is this going to be a timely book? Is this a, a book of the moment? You know, at the second... A, a book called Putin's Downfall would probably command immediate attention, but you can be certain that it would be irrelevant in the space of weeks mm, mm. You know, because events would have moved on uh, and Putin might have won or he might have failed. And so you have to understand what are the currents which are running in the, in the culture. You have to decide, is this subject of sufficient interest? Here's an example. I mentioned that my specialism is Christian books. Mm. Many years ago, many, many years ago, I received a, a proposal from Billy Graham, of all people, or my, my, rather my company did, my boss did. And it was a book on angels. And I mean, Billy Graham, you know, big, big, big well-known evangelist, writing on angels should have been a really interesting subject. It was a really boring book. It was, it was full of assertions. It was very badly written. It was full of unsubstantiated uh, anecdotes. And I said to my boss that we should turn it down. And he initially, he agreed. And so we turned it down. And he mooched past my desk a few weeks later and said, um, by the way, Tony, I've accepted that Billy Graham book on angels. 
And I think what had happened was that he had discovered that from the States that the book was coming out and, and had generated an enormous publishing, an mm. enormous commercial interest. Mm. And sometimes you have to have to count before you read. But the reason for mentioning this story is that the following year, I mean, the book came out in Britain and it did astonishingly well. It shouldn't have done, but it did. And it's still in print. Because Billy Graham knows more about the subject than I do. But the, the thing is that the following year, at least a dozen other publishers came forward with their book on angels, which were all, all better than Billy Graham's. But by that time, the horse had bolted, mm. you know, because you know there was there was one there was space in the market for one really good, you know, rather one really visible book on angels, and that was it. You know, so uh, you do have to be very alert to what else what is happening in the marketplace, and so that's one of the questions which you're going to be asking as an agent is what else is happening, what what else has been published on this. I, I presume it must always be in your mind as an agent, which publisher can I go to with this? Who's most likely to take it? What? Who would it suit? Are they in the mood for it at the moment? These kinds yes. of questions. Yes, you do. I mean, part of your stock in trade as an agent is that you don't waste people's time. And so I, I would, I mean, I've made it very publicly known. Of course, my background in publishing helps me, allows me to say this, is that I will never present a book to a publisher which I would not consider publishing myself. Hmm. Um, no, okay. I mean, that is only... You can't stretch that too far because I've made plenty of mistakes. But the fact remains that um, you know you do stand or fall by the quality of your goods, mm. and so I will not I will not agent any book which I don't think has got a real chance of commercial success. And then the other thing is that you absolutely have to know the proclivities of the publishers with whom you work. So you have to know which publishers ha- handle biography, for example, which ones handle historical fiction. Mm. Which ones handle mechanical engineering, for that matter? Though I have to say that is not an area I specialise in. And so, you know, knowing the people, getting to know them, Zoom is a blessing here because you know you don't have time to go and go and see every office these days. But um, if you can actually get a Zoom conversation going with somebody, that's really valuable. Mm. Okay. And I was wondering whether you had any advice for for writers who are perhaps on the verge of giving up. So they've written and they've tried to submit things or they've tried to publish themselves and they, it's just such hard work and they can't get anywhere and they're just on the verge of saying i'll blow it i can't i can't do this um and let's let's assume for the sake of argument they do have something to say and they do have some talent and actually you know they should carry on what 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 would you be saying to those people okay if you've had lots of turndowns then you do need to ask yourself Am I wasting my time? Let's assume that you're not wasting your time. There's stupid people around because they're because in in a situation of such high pressure, there are always people who are going to be making mistakes. And just remember that the the first volume of what became the Lord of the Rings was the plates were trashed by the by Alan and Unwin, um, and Tolkien when Tolkien's book proved to be popular, they had to reset the entire book because the original printing plates had been trashed because they had no confidence in their own book. And I can multiply that narrative many times over. Mm. I think that the critical thing, if you think that you've got something really worth saying, is to embrace the fact that it is entirely possible to publish yourself. You do not actually need a publisher. If you're prepared to do the work yourself, you you can succeed perfectly well as an independent author. And Kindle Direct Publishing and some of its um, competitors, they're very easy to use. And it is basically free. 
But the trick, the trick is, of course, that you have to do all of the work yourself. You know, they have to do the cover design and the setting and the marketing and the selling. It's not just putting it out on Amazon doesn't isn't going to gain you, gain you any sales. You absolutely then, you know, that's where that's the start of the process, not the end. Mm. Mm. But it can be done. I mean, I'm sure that everybody listening here will, will know of instances where an independent author has succeeded mightily. And let's not bite around the bush here. Amazon pays about 70% royalty, 70% of receipts, whereas most publishers pay 10 or 12% of receipts. Mm. Mm. So if you sit in a even succeeding modestly as an independent author will gain you more money than you would have done by going through a traditional publishing house. Yeah, that is that is the reality of that market, isn't it? Certainly, if you if you publish ebooks online, you will get seventy percent or thereabouts of 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 the the price. And, and even um, and Kindle Direct Publishing also allows you to publish in print form as well. And mm. the same thing applies. Yeah, so you're going to get, I think you'd get some like 30, 40, 35, 40% from them, which is still multiple times more than you'll get through a kind of traditional publishing deal. So yeah, yeah, it's certainly worth thinking about going that road. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our time now. If, if people have listened to this and they're interested in finding out more about you or perhaps sending you kind of material that would be specifically of interest to you in the market that you serve, how would they do that? Okay. Bear in mind that I'm a specialist in Christian books. So if your if your bestseller on mechanical engineering is is languishing on your desk, then I'm afraid I'm the wrong person to send it to. Um, but if you are writing within my own speciality, then I'm very pleased to hear from you. And you can reach me at tonycollinsagent at gmail.com. That is tonycollinsagent at gmail.com. That's great. And that's and just a quick in, initial email will you can then start up a conversation with that person. Yes. Am I allowed to just mention something that I've written myself? Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay, well, uh, because I've had so many, uh, because I've been privileged to make so many mistakes with other people's money, <laughs> I, I've, a few weeks ago I published um, a book called They'll Never Read That, How to Make Mistakes in Publishing. And so if, and although I, as I say, I specialise in Christian materials, the lessons I've learned, I think, are, are universally applicable. And the book, I think, would would is a fun read. My confession says it all. Yes, it certainly is. So I have read this book, and it is great fun and uh, quite an insight into the crazy world of publishing. You know, if you think it's just people sitting there very calmly reading a few manuscripts and no one rushes around at all, and it's all very organised and calm, then it, it isn't. There's a lot of energy and activity going on. So, yeah. No, that's great. Okay, then. Is there anything else you wanted to... Um, share with us any last bits of advice before we finish, Tony. Enjoy yourself. If you mm. if your book doesn't give you it doesn't give you pleasure, then it probably won't give anybody else pleasure either. Basically, it needs to be fun. There needs to be there's mm. there's no money in books, but for most of us, most of us, most of us, <laughs> barely scrape a living. But it, there there is an enormous amount of pleasure mm. um, in the in the writing of books and in the reading of books. There is a, a, an immense amount of joy and make sure that there's some in yours. Wonderful. Okay, then. I think that's a good moment to, to finish. Tony, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Andy. Nice to talk to you. Nice, nice to, to talk to you. Co- great contact. Bless you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. You can find out more about the podcast at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com. 
where you can also find details of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distill them into one volume. I hope this episode has been useful to you on your writing journey. If it has, please do subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. Thank you for listening to this episode and goodbye.